Good morning. Today is Wednesday, July 27th, 2022. This week's Torah portion, the double parasha of Matos Masai, is, occurs at the end of the 40 years in the desert. The Jewish people are just on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. And two tribes, two of the 12 tribes come to Moshe. The tribes of Reuven and Gud had very, very large flocks of animals, and they were on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, which is very, very good for pasturing their land. And so the representatives of these two tribes came to Moshe, and they said to Moshe, to Elazar, to the other leaders, they said, um, The land that we have now, that we are on now, on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, is very good for pasturing, and we have lots of sheep. If this proposal finds merit in your eyes, let us take our share here so that we do not have to cross over to the Jordan where the land that we would get in Israel would not be as good for us. And Moshe says to God, and Reuven, let's stop here for one moment. Because I have a question on this narrative. I do not have an answer to this question. I have searched commentaries and I have not found this question. It is to me a very serious question. And I would appreciate it if you think of an answer, please tell me. And the question is as follows. And Moshe responds to the request of God and Reuven to stay on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. If I was Moshe and I received that question, this is what I would have said. God and Reuven, after 40 years of trying to reach the goal of entering the land of Israel, you tell me that you want to stop here, outside of Israel, on the eastern bank of the Jordan River? How in the world could you be so ungrateful and so uh, undesiring of the opportunity to enter the land of Israel? You want to stay on the doorstep? A number of years ago, in the Louvre Museum in Paris, they designed a new entryway into the museum. It is a magnificent structure. It was designed by I.M. Pai. If you have visited there, if you've seen it, it's a pyramid. It's magnificent. The way in which, in a very modern way, it fits into the Louvre, it's exquisite, magnificent. I remember as a child visiting the Louvre before that was built. So the old entrance to the Louvre was a very simple doorway. And you stood in line, you went into the door, 
there was a place to pay for the entrance, and you went in. And just inside the door, I remember from when I was there as a child, just inside the door, so it's a tiny, nothing little uh, vestibule, and you're standing there for a few minutes, waiting to pay, and there's a painting on the wall. A painting, uh, you know, I don't remember it. It was by nobody famous. It was a painting, it, like people have a painting on the on the wall. Can you imagine a person who travels to visit the Louvre in Paris, and they come into this entranceway, and they're standing in front of this nondescript, ordinary painting, and they say, oh my goodness, wow, this is amazing. I'm not going in. I don't need the Louvre. This is all I care about. I'm just going to sit here and appreciate this. Can you imagine a person about to enter a building with some of the greatest art in the history of mankind? No, this is fine. This is all I need. Can you imagine a group of people who are traveling for 40 years with the most amazing opportunity? God says, I'm going to give you this land. You're going to be holy people. You're going to create a society. The opportunity to, to, to build this ideal Torah society in Israel. The opportunity to be able to fulfill the mitzvahs, the commandments, that the, the agricultural laws, which only apply in Israel. They don't apply outside of Israel. The opportunity to be part of Am Yisrael, the Jewish people. The unfolding of the story, the narrative, the destiny of the Jewish people. And you want to stay here? You were literally at the entry to the promised land. That's If I was Moshe, that's what I would have said to them. And remember, this narrative comes just after last week's Torah portion, where Moshe learned that he would not be allowed to enter the land of Israel. And we know that it is perhaps the greatest disappointment in Moshe's entire life. And Moshe, who wanted his whole life to be able to enter the land of Israel, and he is prevented from doing so by God. And these group of people say, oh, we don't need it. We don't want to go. We'll stay where we are. We're happy here. That's what I would have said if I was Moshe. But that's not what Moshe says. Instead, Moshe says, Vayomer Moshe levnei God velevnei Ruvain, ha'achechem yavo la'milchama. The rest of the tribes are going to enter the land of Israel. They're going to have to fight wars in order to conquer the land of Israel. V'atem teishvupo, you're going to stay here in safety while your brothers and sisters have to go fight this war to settle the land? You are going to cause a demoralizing among the other tribes. They're going to feel bad. They're going to feel, well, maybe this is not such a worthwhile endeavor. Maybe it's not worth fighting for. Why should they have to shoulder more of the burden of not having you there to help and lowering the morale. Maybe they're going to think you don't want to go because you're worried about the fight, but Hashem promised it to us. Okay, that's the argument that Moshe makes to them. And so they negotiate 
and they come to an agreement and they fulfill their agreement. But my question is, why is that the issue? Why is Moshe worried only about the morale of the Jewish people who are going in and not worried about the lack of willingness to take the opportunity God is offering, the lack of gratitude to God's gift of the land of Israel? Why is that not what Moshe raises to them? Now, so I do not have an answer to that question. And if you have an answer, I would love to hear it. But whatever you're going to answer me, history showed that those two tribes remained separated from the rest of Klal Yisrael, from the rest of the Jewish people. At the end of the, second, uh, of the first temple period, which is about 800 years later, the Chorban, the destruction of the first temple, which is what we commemorate on Tisha B'Av coming up. The destruction of the Beis Hamikdash in Yerushalayim and the exile of the Jewish people to Babylonia, to Bavel. That exile did not occur all at once. It actually occurred in four waves. The fourth wave the final wave, the final exile was Yehuda, the southern kingdom around Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed, Tisha B'Av, and the Jews in that part of Israel were exiled. However, that was only the fourth wave. There were three previous waves of Jews from the northern kingdom. And those three waves had occurred many years later, each one separated by a number of waves, by a number of years. And the first wave, the first area to be destroyed, the first group of Jews to be exiled, was the two tribes on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. I don't have an answer to my question. But the fault that I am highlighting with this question, the underlying truth of their request, in fact, came to pass. Our sages teach us a general rule do not separate yourself from the congregation. Don't separate yourself from the group. Jewish people are going into Israel. Don't stay by yourselves on the Eastern Bank. Don't separate yourself. That general rule applies in situations small and routine, as well as large and dramatic. Sometimes it happens in shul, in synagogue. People come to Davin, they come to the Minyan. Okay, I understand sometimes people need their personal space. They need to be a little bit away from other people, especially during COVID. People want to be separate, want distancing. Fine, I understand that. But not infrequently, there'll be one or a small group of people that will be way, way apart from everybody else. Or often, and, it, and, and it's just surprising to me, They'll be just outside the door, in the hallway. 
separating themselves. Now, perhaps there is a legitimate reason, in which case I have no criticism. But our rabbis tell us that one who prays with a minion but stays outside of the room without a legitimate reason, that is cause for criticism. Our rabbis tell us, Al-Tifr person who's sitting outside the door or a person who is sitting far, far away just because they want to be by themselves, not for any other specific reason, legitimate reason, just to be separate. Our rabbis tell us, don't separate yourself from the congregation. So I want to share an amazing story. This story is told by Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, of blessed memory. So he was the Rosh HaYeshiva, the head of the Yeshiva of the Mir Yeshiva. Mir, a town in Lithuania. And it's an incredible story. When World War II started and the Jews in Lithuania were under attack and in danger, so there were about 300 students and faculty at this yeshiva in Mir. And it was a major yeshiva for, for many, many years. And the yeshiva as a group took two decisions, made two decisions, fateful decisions. Number one, they decided they were going to stay together. The faculty, the teachers, and the students, young men, all young men, they said, we're staying together. We're not going home. We're not leaving. We're staying together as a group. Whatever we do, we're going to do it as a group. And they also decided to go east. The logical direction to go would have been to go towards America, maybe, or maybe towards Israel. They decided to go east, due east. Now, in Lithuania, the capital at that time was Kovna. And you may be familiar with this part of the story. In Kovna, there was a Japanese consul official whose name was Sugihara. He was the consul in charge of tourism and commerce. Let me ask you a question. In the middle of World War II, in Kovna, how much tourism do you think there was of people wanting to go on vacation to Japan? The, the, the whole premise of his being there is, is beyond the bounds of natural reality. It is supernatural, without question. And this man, this non-Jewish man, this Japanese official, wrote visas for everyone in the yeshiva, which was about 300 visas, to travel to Japan. He wrote a total of over 10,000 visas, saving the lives of these people who traveled east by train all the way across Russia and eventually made it to Japan, most of whom survived the war. It's an incredible, incredible story. And by the way, this man, you may know, did this at great personal danger and sacrifice without question. 
He is one of the tzaddikei umos ha'olam, one of the righteous Gentiles in the history of mankind. Incredible. The group from the Mir Yeshiva stayed together. And they traveled together. First, they traveled to Kobe, Japan. And then they went from Kobe to Shanghai. And they spent the rest of the war in Shanghai. And when they reached Shanghai, they found something amazing. They found the base Aharon Synagogue, a beautiful, gigantic, amazing synagogue in pristine condition. Every detail was beautiful, was executed, was present. By the way, this synagogue was renovated again a few years ago. And I heard from people who went to visit it. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And of course, it is this amazing synagogue in a place with no Jews until the Mir Yeshiva arrived. And the story is as follows. Years earlier, there was a wealthy Jewish man who was living in Shanghai. He had no children and he was nearing the end of his life. And he had a dream. And in the dream, he was instructed to build a beautiful synagogue in the middle of town, which he did, even though there were no Jews there. But he built it. He built it. It stood unused for 15 years until the Mir Yeshiva came. And they studied there, they lived there, they prayed there till the end of the war. There are many other miracles that occurred to this group, like many others. In fact, a disproportionate number of the greatest Jewish leaders of the next generation, the generation after World War II, were all people who had gone through this experience of being in Shanghai together with the Mir Yeshiva. I had the, I've had the privilege to know personally several of them and to hear directly from them some of the incredible stories of what happened and how they survived and how they thrived there. They were able to devote themselves during the war devote themselves totally, exclusively to advanced Torah study, and they became, went on to become some of the greatest Torah scholars and Torah leaders of the next generation. Incredible. Okay. That's all the introduction to the part of the story that I want to share with you this morning. So, they're in this big synagogue, beautiful, fancy synagogue. Some of the students, a few of the students, were sitting separate from the rest of the group. There was a main sanctuary where there was room for hundreds and hundreds of people, plenty of room, and the young men and the, and the teachers were studying and learning there, and there were a few that went up to the balcony to the women's section. They wanted their own space. They went up to the women's section. They went up to the balcony, away from the rest of the group in the main sanctuary. 
And Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, the Rosh Yeshiva, the leader, the head of the Yeshiva, was upset with them. He was not, he was not happy with, with what they were doing. And he said to them, if you do not stay together with the tzibur, if you do not stay together with the congregation, if you separate yourself from the group, you will not be saved. If you separate yourself from the community, you will not be protected by its merit. Altifrosh menatzibor. Don't separate yourself from the community, from the congregation, because if you do so, if you leave the umbrella, you will not be protected by the merit of the group. And that was the fate of the tribes of Reuven and Gud, who stayed on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. And that's a tremendous lesson for every single one of us. We are protected. We are connected. We are part of the group. And we separate ourselves at our own risk. My friends, I want to wish you a great day. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.